The La Crosse Public Library Archives presents Dark La Crosse Stories, a series in collaboration with the La Crosse Tribune, featuring the seedier side of La Crosse, Wisconsin's history. These true stories are reflections of their time and place in history. The intent is not to diminish the human suffering that may have resulted from these events, but to bring light to ways in which people in the past experienced life. The city of La Crosse and the locations where these stories took place occupy part of a vast network of the ancestral lands of the Ho-Chunk, and we thank our Ho-Chunk community members and their ancestors for their stewardship of this area's land and history. A hardworking brother, born the 11th son of a farming family, noted for his good character and straightforward life by family and neighbors alike, a man whose final act appeared to be reading the Bible in the kitchen by the fire, or a desperate, demented man prone to drinking and violent acts, his sudden fits of fury made even more menacing by the fact that he couldn't speak above a whisper. In the cold gray days of February 1894, Evan Evanson, still living with his family and working on their Bostwick Valley farm in the town of Greenfield, was growing increasingly quarrelsome with his siblings. He'd started drinking, occasionally breaking things in the house, or taking his aggression out on the horses by whipping them. His family was used to Evan's temper, though things seemed to be worsening these last few weeks. Late into the month, Evan threatened his sister Julia with a kitchen knife, but she knocked it out of his hand into the snow and returned to her chores. The next night, around 1.30 a.m., when the rest of the family was sleeping, Evan picked up an axe and crept into the room of his brother Theodore. I was angry at him. I wanted the family to sell the farm to me. They wouldn't do it, so I picked up the axe and stood over Theodore. Watched him sleep for a while. I hit him with the axe handle. I kept hitting him. He tried to run and lock himself in another room, so I started chopping the walls down around him. Evan kept the whole family trapped upstairs through most of the night, until finally falling asleep. His sister Julia was able to take the weapon and hide it, and his brother Theodore snuck out through a window and made his way to lacrosse for the sheriff. Upon reaching law enforcement, he was found to have several bruises on his body and a severe cut on his head. Theodore was able to receive medical attention, but the sheriff was called away on another matter before he could return with Theodore to the Evanson house. The next morning, Julia drove her brother Evan into town for some supplies. Upon their return, the plan was for the sheriff to meet them at the Evanson home and arrest Evan for assaulting his brother. However, while in town, Evan separated from his sister, purchased a revolver, and headed to a nearby saloon for a few drinks. It was at the saloon. I heard the sheriff was looking for me. So when I got in the car with Julia to head home, I told her to pull over at the fork in the road just before you reached the Tullison's Cooley. And I jumped out and just ran. Despite two days of searching, Evanson eluded the sheriff. On the night of February 25, 1894, he made another late-night visit to his family's farm. He fired his newly acquired gun at his own family. Three bullets hit his mother, one in the fleshy part of her left arm, another in the left leg below the knee, and a third in her back. Despite the gunshot wounds, she ran from the house attempting to flee. But she slipped on the ice outside and fell, breaking her right ankle. The sight of his mother's body bleeding on the snow-covered ground caused Evan to scream. He ran back in the house and returned with a butcher knife. I was going to take my own life. Lord help me, I tried. I cut again and again and again. Evan Evanson passed out on the ground outside the house. 
His attempt at suicide failed, though he had sawed open his own throat in several places. The rest of the family stood frozen on the lawn, too scared to move. Eventually, Julia, Theodore, and the others carried the bodies of both their mother and brother inside the home. For days, it was unclear whether either of them would survive. Julia acted as the main caretaker, contracting blood poisoning in the process from treating Evan, though she recovered. The doctors removed the first bullet from Mrs. Evanson's arm, but were unable to remove the other two. Evan required a tracheostomy in order to breathe, which resulted in a permanent silver tube down his throat, and the reason for his then-permanent whisper voice. The wounds he inflicted on himself were up to an inch deep and jagged, so they never healed properly. Food and drink would sometimes become lodged in his windpipe rather than his esophagus and come flying out the hole in his neck. I went away for a while, sent to stay at the state hospital in Mendota. The judge had me arraigned for what I had done, but it wasn't me. I did what I did, but I wasn't me. Even Mama said she believes I didn't know her when I shot her. It wasn't me. I wasn't me. The state of Wisconsin versus Evan Evanson trial lasted from April to June that year. Evanson's lawyer argued that he was not guilty by reason of insanity. Papers of the time splashed headlines of the insane man and his criminal acts. Doctors testified that Evanson displayed many signs of insanity at the time of the crime. Another sister, married and known as Mrs. Howard, testified to Evanson being of good character normally and how he had only recently displayed violence and aggression in the few weeks before the crime. Speaking for the prosecution side, Theodore, the brother whom Evanson first assaulted with the axe handle, relayed that the two of them often quarreled. Evanson's mother testified that she thought he mistook her for Theodore as it was dark and he was drunk at the time. He was drunk but not insane, she said, having heard her son shout, God help me, after she fell. Though she believed her son was of sane mind, she told the jury she would not live in the same house as him ever again. After a months-long, bitterly fought trial, the jury deliberated overnight and came to a surprising verdict at 7.30 in the morning. We, the jury, do find that there is reasonable doubt as to the sanity of said defendant at the time of the alleged offense. And for that, we, the jury, find the defendant not guilty. Furthermore, we, the jury, find the defendant has recovered from such insanity and at the time of this trial is now of sound mind. Upon the findings of the jury, counsel for the defense made a motion for the prisoner to be discharged. It was granted. Evan Evanson was a free man. Little is known about how Evanson passed his days following the trial. He stayed in the area, continued farming, and eventually married and had a son. His name reappears in the La Crosse Tribune in 1906 with a headline that read, Maniac Threatens to Slay Whole Family. Evanson was once again sent to the state hospital at Mendota, pronounced insane by a commission of doctors, and eventually released, but patterns of old aggressive behavior and violent acts were on the rise. Over the years, a growing discontent between Evanson and his wife, Sophia, led to him signing over the deed to the farm and several pieces of machinery, altogether worth an estimated $10,000 to her after she found him in what the Tribune called a compromising position. Later, Evanson tried to sue his wife to get the land back, but that trial would never take place. My husband died on the morning of March 1st, 1915. His body was found in the cellar of our home, charred and burned, from a house fire started the night before. 
My son Edmund and I were not home, as Evan had been drinking again and was in one of his moods. He struck our boy, just sixteen at the time, and lunged toward me. I grabbed my son's hand and we ran with nothing but the clothes on our backs for a mile until we reached my brother's house. We stayed there for the night. It was early in the morning, not yet dawn, when the news of the fire got to us. Neighbors made the call and rushed to our home, several of them running inside the burning building to help carry out furniture and other goods. A group of them worked until the smoke got too thick. Evan was alongside them, I was told, weeping and shouting, My home is going to burn to the ground! At some point during the chaos, the rescuers lost track of Evan. No one could find him, and attempts to re-enter the building, they were futile. It wasn't until the fire wore itself out that they were able to search the house again. They found his body in the cellar. We knew it was Evan from the silver tube in his throat. It was all that survived in the ash. The fire started in the kitchen. It was well known that Evanson liked to keep the room hot. He'd been reading the Bible by the firelight, and a table with that book open to the page he was reading was one of the few things he saved from the blaze. Like so much of Evan Evanson's story, the condition of his sanity was in question in his last days, too. Just a few days earlier, a petition was sent around to neighbors asking them to sign off that Evanson be readmitted to the state hospital. Several signed saying that they thought Evanson was actually of sane mind. Was Evanson a mentally ill man with anger issues and marital problems? Or was he a hard worker and strong in character? My husband was only strong in one thing, and that was his liquor intake. It was a joke in the town that Evan Evanson was a habitual drunkard who never tasted liquor. He drank it through the tube in his throat. Flushing his plumbing is what he called it. Thought it was a good joke. The night of the fire, Evanson had let go a crew of woodworkers he'd hired when he believed they weren't working fast enough, though they were still under contract. An eavesdropping farmer, listening in on a party line, overheard one of the woodworkers say, something is going to happen here at the farm tonight, and you can look for it to happen tonight. After learning of this detail, the Evanson family got involved, with a few of his sisters demanding the fire marshal investigate the cause of the fire, adamantly declaring that Evanson would never burn down his own home or commit suicide. It was painful to sit through. Such a mess for me and my son to have to deal with, and the newspapers spreading gossip just like a house fire. You know in one of them they reported that Edmund watched the rescue team lift his father's burned body out of the cellar, With an amused smile? How could they print something like that? And how could Evan's own sister state that Evan would never commit suicide when he had attempted to do so in front of them years earlier? Some things I will never understand. The calls for investigation by Evanson's sisters made little progress. While the fire marshal claimed arson was a possibility, the city attorney said it didn't warrant an investigation. When it came time to bury Evanson's body, Mrs. Evanson took the county to court, arguing that they should pay for the funeral services of her husband. I wanted nothing to do with his body. I tried to warn the authorities that Evan was insane, that he would harm me or someone else or the property. They wouldn't listen to a woman, but by God, they'll make her pay for it. Her request was also denied. She and her son Edmund were present at the funeral. The cause of the fire and the death of Evan Evanson remain a mystery. 
Opinions on his state of mind and what happened in his final days remained so oppositional that five months after the funeral, two brothers broke out in a fight in a Barry Mills bar just discussing the matter. So who was Evan Evanson? Can a person shift from sane to insane like a yo-yo on a string and still be declared safe for society? What does it mean that most of Evanson's accusers were women who were not listened to by the judge, jury, and police force? The archives can only tell a piece of the story. The rest is just whispers. And now I'd like to welcome in Sarah Luddington, Associate Librarian at the La Crosse Public Library Archives, who did some of the initial research for this story. What comes to mind when you hear the word asylum? Do you picture a place? A rambling, park-like property? An imposing building with staggered wings that look like they are reaching out to draw you in? Maybe it looks abandoned in your mind. Haunted, even? A place ripe for urban legends? Now think about the phrase, to give asylum. Somehow, the addition of a verb makes that word so much kinder. To give asylum is to provide respite, shelter, security. So how did we get from one meaning to another? And what does this have to do with Evan Evanson? Unfortunately, Evan Evanson had the bad luck to be sent to the Wisconsin State Hospital for the Insane at a time in 1894 when the shine was beginning to wear off a philosophy toward mental health care that had once held such hope. When the Wisconsin State Hospital for the Insane was being planned in 1857, the board responsible for it employed an architect who would be able to tailor a popular new plan to their own specifications. It was called the Kirkbride Plan, developed by psychiatrist Thomas Story Kirkbride, who worked with early mental health advocate Dorothea Dix to promote an approach to care called moral treatment. Now, you may be thinking, moral treatment, that sounds like an obvious approach to mental health care. And you would be correct, but at the time, it was revolutionary. Up until then, people in need of mental health care were treated criminally. Their behavior was seen as incurable and a failing on their part. Kirkbride's approach was that people could be cured by being treated in an environment of calm. He developed a design for a hospital that would allow for fresh air and sunshine in any room. There would be a central building with wings extending on either side that were slightly staggered. He recommended that these hospitals be constructed on large plots of land to allow for enjoying the benefits of being outdoors. In Wisconsin, such a locale was acquired on the north shore of Lake Mendota, and construction began in 1860. In the hospital trustees' report for that year, accommodation was already being made in the event that the 32 patient capacity was exceeded. Two years and an expansion later, the hospital board noted a total of 103 patients at the time of its annual report. The day-to-day activities of the patients, as reported by the board, involved social events, opportunities to attend lectures, as well as working to maintain the facility, either on its farm or in the laundry facilities. As this state-supported method of treatment, which was only intended for short-term care, gained traction, the demand for it put the moral treatment philosophy to the test. Budgets were strained and care workers saw less funding as more patients were funneled into the hospitals. 
The appeal of this option was such that senility in the aging community was reclassified as a psychiatric disorder, allowing families to commit their elders to the state hospital when they could no longer care for them. Hospitals struggled to keep the expansive buildings maintained. A highlight of a biennial report from the hospital board in 1894, the year that Evan Evanson was first committed, was that the buildings were painted and straw beds were replaced with spring mattresses. About this time, the state hospital would have been operating at or above capacity, as was the case at many similar hospitals nationwide. Choices made as a response to operating under these conditions worked to sour the reputation of the hospitals. Nellie Bly filed her famous investigative report, 10 Days in a Madhouse, in which she had herself committed to the Women's Lunatic Asylum in New York and uncovered the mistreatment of patients there, had already been published by 1887. The reveal of rampant mistreatment, coupled with changing medical treatments, pivoting from providing a sense of security and routine in which to heal to electrical treatments and lobotomies, slowly began to change the optics of the institution over the course of the 20th century. Further changes in the structure of state agencies in the past 50 to 60 years led to the closure and demolition of many of these hospitals, with just enough time in between to allow for the growth of urban legends and ghost stories. Though the original Kirkbride structure was demolished in the 1950s, the since renamed Mendota Mental Health Institute still operates on the north shore of Lake Mendota. Thanks for listening. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.